everybody, Tyler Smith here with another More Than One Lesson mini-sode. I uh, just wanted to first thank Andrew Clavin for being on the show last week, and I wanted to welcome uh, anybody who uh, arrived at More Than One Lesson through the Andrew Clavin show. You're welcome to uh, stick around and see uh, what is on the podcast and check out what's on the website. Uh, so, okay, here's what we're doing uh, this Minnesota. It may seem kind of strange if you looked at the uh, at the description. Um, we so I'm in a class right now called Film Festival Programming. It's an independent study class. It's me and one other student, and we've been meeting with uh, a guy who actually works for uh, the, the academy. And the assignment, the the final assignment, was to essentially design our own film festival, and it could be whatever it is we wanted. And so I did that. And I came up with something called the Real Faith Film Festival, real spelled with two E's. Uh, kind of a generic title, but it's, uh, it's all I could come up with. Uh, and the point of this festival is, you know, this is a, uh, it's a fantasy festival. We can, have it, we can have it be whatever we want. And so this is a sort of a repertory film festival of films that already exist and in some cases have existed for a very long time. Uh, and it's been... Very, um, very exciting to write this out, even though it doesn't actually exist. Uh, but it's also been frustrating because as I have been writing this out, I also wish that it's, uh, that it existed. So anyway, uh, so I was actually going to take you through this, uh, fantasy film festival of mine. And what's great is that these films, uh, that are, you know, part of the program, they are available uh, for you to watch. So you can uh, you can go through this, and you can actually have this film festival on your own with your friends. I don't know if they'll be your friends by the end, but uh, you know, at least you will have watched some good movies. And a good portion of these are films that we've talked about uh, in some cases at great length uh, at more than one lesson. Uh, but actually, before I get into this, I did want to mention a couple of other things. First off, um, I wanted to reassure uh, some of you that um, contributed to my Kickstarter campaign back in uh, April. Uh, I do have all of the books uh, that I ordered, and it's just a function of shipping them. Uh, I've been doing them a little bit at a time. I haven't uh, gotten to all of them. I think there's still like 40 left that I need to ship. But rest assured, if you haven't received them yet, uh, they will be in the mail probably next week uh, once once I am done with this quarter, I will have a lot more time to just sit and write addresses on on uh, padded envelopes. So, if you uh, be on, be on the lookout for uh, for uh, a package from Los Angeles with the name Smith, and uh, and if you do not receive yours in the next couple of weeks, uh, shoot me an email, Tyler at more than one lesson dot com, uh, and then. I, these books are also available for sale. So if you'd be interested in purchasing my book worth watching, it is $15. At the moment, I am only shipping uh, in the United States, but you can go to morethanonelesson.com and then click on the button that says Tyler's book. So um, I also wanted to mention something else that's a little bit strange. So uh, I have... I've been thinking a lot about this, and it's sort of a function of the International Christian Film Festival that I'm doing this. Um, I'm kind of hanging uh, hanging my shingle back out as a script consultant. Um, what that essentially means is I read 
people's scripts and I tell them what I think they need to do to make them better. Um, I have experience with this. Uh, I, about 10 years ago, I guess at this point, I interned at a couple of places in which I would read scripts and write coverage. And then I, that led to a, uh, a freelance job with a producer. And then I've done it just on my own. Um, not for anybody. I've done it on my own, uh, a few times since then, but it's a thing that I kind of got out of. Um, but, uh, I, I enjoy doing it and I think I'm good at it and I charge a pretty reasonable rate, uh, essentially, essentially, uh, for the rate that I charge, which I will tell you if you email me, uh, I will read your script and then you get two hours of Skype time. Um, or if you live in Los Angeles, then we can just grab coffee and talk for two hours. Um, and then after that you can revise your script and then, uh, and then the process starts over again, albeit at a reduced price. And at that point I read your script and you get one hour of Skype time. Um, because hopefully your revisions mean that we don't need a full two at that point. Um, no scripts before the third draft, please. Um, because otherwise, you know, a first draft is already, is just going to be a mess no matter what. I know this myself as of right now, because later on this evening and tomorrow, I need to spend time revising the first draft that I, uh, need to turn in, in a couple of days. So, um, Anyway, so if you're interested, if you are a writer, whether it be a feature script or, or, a, or a short script, um, and you would like another pair of eyes, uh, and I would say an experienced pair of eyes, um, then shoot me an email, Tyler, more than one lesson.com. And then we can work out, uh, how best to make that happen. Um, I do have a specific rate, but again, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to negotiate based on what your budget might be. So anyway, okay. So here we go. Essentially, what, I'll, what I'm going to be doing is reading you the program that I have written for the Real Faith Film Festival. So I'll just be reading uh, my rather lengthy intro and then going into the films themselves. So uh, hopefully you enjoy this. Hopefully this sounds fun to you. Um, uh, hopefully next week we will have a, a full episode or at least a, a more structured mini-sode, but this is something that uh, I thought you might get a kick out of. So, okay. So this is page one of the Real Faith Film Festival program, and it says an introduction to the festival. Ever since the abolition of the Hayes Code and the adoption of the MP MPAA rating system, Christians have been suspicious of Hollywood. Suddenly, movies, previously restrained from displaying sexuality, violence, and profanity, could freely engage in the depiction of all three. This freedom was not only artistic, but thematic as well. The Hayes Code forbade studios from criticizing the church and from showing criminals going unpunished. Now, though, with the fall of the traditional studio system and the R rating allowing for all kinds of content to be incorporated into mainstream film, the Christian community quickly began to distance itself from film as an art form. It was no longer seen as a medium that a Christian could enjoy, safe from stories and images that they might view as offensive. So, as both Christian audiences and artists withdrew from the world of film, the rift between the devout and the secular grew wider until, in many Christian denominations, the very act of watching movies, regardless of the rating, was frowned upon. This attitude would expand to include television and music, as Christians attempted to live out a particularly rigid interpretation of 1 John 2.15, which states, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
the contentious relationship uh, between the mainstream American church and modern filmmakers and Hollywood in particular continued well into the 1990s. However, there was still a desire within the Christian community to watch movies, just not the movies that uh, were uh, oh, that were being presented to them. Pardon me. And so the Christian film industry was born with movies like The Omega Code and Left Behind, low-budget thrillers with a spiritual twist, achieving a modest following. For several years, the Christian film industry seemed to consist primarily of spiritual variations of much more ambitious Hollywood fare, like Independence Day and the Terminator films. This all changed with Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, which Christians came out to see in droves. Finally, a real film director, an Oscar-winning one at that, was producing a sincerely religious film. This was a movie that many felt was safe, a throwback to the biblical epics of the Hays Code era, like William Wyler's Ben-Hur. As such, the film broke box office records, which caused Hollywood itself to take notice. What followed was a mad dash to create as much faith-based content as possible. Over the next several years, Hollywood would put films... Pardon me, Hollywood would put out films like The Nativity Story, Noah, and Exodus Gods and Kings, Bible-based stories superficially in the vein of The Passion of the Christ. However, Christian audiences believe that these films, two of them directed by vocal atheists, were not sincere attempts to engage with Christian themes and principles. And so word of mouth quickly spread, and these films would soon be seen in the Christian community as cynical cash grabs by studios looking to capitalize on a new movie-going demographic. The Christian film industry itself, however, began to flourish, producing films that were shot on shoestring budgets but brought in tens of millions of dollars. These were not biblical epics but were instead social dramas tackling the everyday problems of Christian life. Movies like Fireproof, God's Not Dead, and Miracles from Heaven were readily embraced by the Christian community despite dismal reviews and low production values. While it could appear that in the eagerness of the devout to embrace these films, Christians were finally comfortable with film going again, the difference in content and quality between mainstream film and Christian film was stark, with very little chance of changing anytime soon. Christians were choosing to attend these films often out of a sense of duty, despite their overt admission excuse me, that they weren't very good. This allegiance to the very idea of faith-based film led to the establishment and success of larger production studios such as PureFlix, which would go on to branch out into a popular streaming service providing dozens of Christian films in one central location. An unexpected byproduct of the proliferation of these films was the rise of the Christian Film Festival. While there aren't actually that many of them, certainly compared with the number of mainstream film festivals, the opportunity to exhibit lesser-known and independent faith-based films, both for audiences and potential distributors, was the next logical step as the industry and market grew larger. It is here that the real Faith Film Festival began to take shape. In talking with the various attendees of these other, of these other Christian film festivals, I found that many of the viewers and filmmakers expressed an intense desire for faith-based films to be of higher quality. While several people made it clear that they supported Christian film on principle, they were getting tired of defending the artistic quality of movies that they knew could be much better. It would appear that this exasperation was starting to spread, with several filmmakers choosing to actually invest more in their products, producing faith-based films uh, that were more subtle in their exploration of themes and more compelling in both style and substance. With a renewed interest in filmmaking and a real desire to embrace stylistic nuance and storytelling complexity, 
It is time for a faith-based film festival that explores the different ways that artists have expressed their own beliefs and challenged those of their viewers. This is a festival for mature Christian filmgoers who are looking to deepen their appreciation of film and maybe even their own faith as well. The Real Faith Film Festival features movies from all over the spectrum, from actual faith-based films to documentaries to kids' movies to classics, even stretching back as far as the silent era. The films being shown are meant to challenge, inspire, and elevate the audience's expectations of what a movie can do. We even incorporate a couple of midnight screenings of classic horror films for those willing to look more closely at the dark side of spirituality. We will also feature Q&A sessions with the various writers, directors, actors, and experts associated with these films to give the festival attendees an even closer look at the choices and motivations that went into the making of these fascinating films. Many years ago, Christians expressed a true desire to reconnect with film. And with the Real Faith Film Festival, we are giving them an opportunity to connect an opportunity to connect with this unique art form in a way that they never have before. Our hope is that we can inspire our attendees to demand more of themselves, both as filmmakers and film viewers, so that the future of faith-based cinema is one not merely of sincerity, but of genuine, undeniable quality. All right, so that's the intro, and uh, here we go. The very first, So this is Thursday. I, I decided September 7th, so I guess it's this year. And uh, we're only showing one movie on day one, and it's, uh, it starts at 6 p.m., and it is indeed The Passion of the Christ. We kick off the festival with the film that started it all, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, with its, unflinching, unf sorry, with its unflinching depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus, is both a harrowing and hopeful film that captured the hearts of millions of Christians around the world. The film quickly became mired in controversy, though, as accusations of anti-Semitism were seen as confirmed by the director's angry rant shortly thereafter. Since then, Gibson has, has attempted to rehabilitate his image, but the impact of his film has remained. In it, Gibson brings the brutal sense of realism that has marked his previous and subsequent films. His Jesus, played by Jim Caviezel, is quiet and enigmatic, perhaps even a bit at, the, uh, at a distance from an audience so eager to connect with him. Where the Passion of the Christ really shines, however, is in its depiction of the witnesses to Christ's death, from Pilate to Mary to the Roman soldier that is healed by Jesus. The brief moments of engagement with, these per, uh, with those peripheral to the story serves to broaden the story of Christ's sacrifice, touching the lives of all present. And then I wrote here that there will be a Q&A with Jim Caviezel afterwards. Once again, there's uh, some wishful thinking going on here. So, uh, so that is the only thing for Thursday. Friday, uh, September 8th, we kick things off at 10 a.m. pretty early with A Monster Calls. J.A. Bayona's little scene, A Monster Calls, is a masterpiece of fantasy and emotion. The story of a young boy's struggle with his dying mother's illness, the film, on its surface, would seem to be about loss, but is at its heart about something much deeper, something more complex. This is a film about honesty, truth, and the often contradictory nature of both. As young, as young Connor, a wonderful Lewis McDougall, grapples with the gradual loss of his mother, he conjures up a large, imposing monster, Liam Neeson who proceeds to invite him into a world of fantasy and escape through a series of beautifully animated stories. These stories are revealed to be parables, however, as Connor discovers that the monster, whose demeanor becomes both more forceful and benevolent, isn't providing an escape at all, but is simply preparing Connor for the worst. 
a film that finds hope in the midst of tragedy while never papering over the heartbreak that can come with it. A Monster Calls is the antidote to so many faith-based films, which assures us that things will turn out fine if only we accept Christ. It is a film for both kids and grown-ups who can often see God as an intimidating, unsympathetic monster, but who soon understand—oh, uh, but who soon understand he, that he shares our sadness and sincerely desires to comfort us. And then the Q and A there is with Patrick Ness, the writer of the novel and the screenplay. Next up at twelve thirty is Risen. Christian films are often marked by generalized, meandering stories that only ever seem to gain purpose when they're proselytizing. Risen, directed by Kevin Reynolds, sidesteps this tendency by embracing the storytelling techniques of a modern police procedural. Procedural, pardon me. Following Jesus' crucifixion and subsequent disappearance, Clavius, a world-weary Roman centurion, Joseph Fiennes, is assigned by Pilate, Peter Firth, to find the body, lest the rumors of his resurrection start to gain traction. As Clavius investigates Jesus' disappearance, he speaks to the rabbi's followers and disciples, learning more about this mysterious man. The more he learns, the more intrigued he is. It is a fascinating a fascinating way to present the gospel, chiefly because the information bring, uh, the information presented doesn't feel like exposition. Instead, the investigation provides the forward momentum that so many Christian films lack, resulting in a story that is both engrossing and inspiring. And then I have later a Q&A with Kevin Reynolds, the director. So, uh, next up at 3 p.m. is Chariots of Fire. The winner of Best Picture for 1981, Chariots of Fire tells the inspiring story of two British athletes competing at the 1924 Olympics. While faith-based audiences have undoubtedly resonated most with the story of Eric Liddell, uh, Ian Charlson, the runner whose Christian faith dictates both his actions and attitudes, the equally intriguing drives of Harold Abrams, uh, Ben Cross, cannot be ignored. One man runs for the glory of God while the other appears to be chasing personal validation through victory, essentially setting up a dilemma for faithful viewers who so frequently, who so frequently attempt to do the former, but eventually arrive at the latter. With engrossing performances, exciting race sequences, and an iconic score by Vangelis, Chariots of Fire has remained in the public consciousness for over 30 years, but is seldom discussed in overtly thematic terms by Christian audiences. And then after that, I have a Q&A with David... McCasland, who is a biographer of Eric Liddell. Next up is Sing Over Me, Jacob Kinberg's documentary about the sexual struggles of Christian hymn writer Dennis Jernigan is bound to start a few debates between conservative and liberal viewers. A man who identified as gay before eventually, quote, giving up unquote, the lifestyle, Jernigan would go on to marry a woman and have several children as he would tour the, uh, as he would tour the country telling his story of struggle and triumph over his uh, unwanted attractions. While, Kil- while Kinberg's film attempts to treat Jernigan's story fairly and objectively, there is no denying that Jernigan himself is a controversial figure. Uh, as others in the documentary talk about his story being an inspiration for them as they dealt with their own sexual temptation, one could ask if Jernigan's eagerness to tell his story is inspiring or ultimately detrimental. By allowing Jernigan to frame his own story as he sees fit, Kinberg allows the audience its own reaction, instead of dictating how we should feel. It is a film that is both intimate and important, uh, specific and general, personal and political, and will definitely start some conversations. And then I have a Q&A uh, Q a with Jacob and Dennis Jern- uh, Jernigan. Next up is The Apostle. Robert Duvall's heartfelt, passionate story of the redemption of a deeply flawed pastor, played by Duvall himself, winds up being a fascinating portrait of Southern Christian culture, and has thus been considered by many as being more about religious hypocrisy than sincere faith. Uh, 
Others consider the film to be genuinely inspirational and honest. That a straightforward warts and all depiction of a devout Christian can allow for such divergent interpretations speaks both to its power and to the complex relationship between faith and sin. As the titular apostle, Duval crafts a character that is sincere in his desire to serve God and give hope to others, but often struggles to keep his own narcissism at bay. That he is nonetheless able to plant a church in a small Louisiana community and bring together its residents is its own testament to the biblical idea of God using broken people to accomplish great things. And then afterwards, I have a Q&A with John Beasley, who's one of the actors, and David Mansfield, who is, a, one, who is the composer. All right, and then at 11.15 p.m., we have our uh, one of our midnight screenings of The Exorcist. Historically, the Christian community has had an antagonistic relationship with horror, suspicious at best and condemning at worst. The nature of horror is to engage with the darker elements of the world and of humanity, which many Christians are reluctant to accept, fearing a too casual relationship with demonic forces. William Friedkin's classic The Exorcist addresses these these forces forces, uh, an endurance test even for the most hardened of audiences. The story of a single mother, uh, Ellen Burstyn, whose young daughter, Linda Blair, is possessed by a demon is so unflinching in its depiction of cruelty and evil that it can easily uh, that it can be easy to feel as though the film is suggesting that evil is infinitely more powerful and oppressive than good. This is especially true when a young priest, Jason Miller, is called in to consult with the mother only to have his own doubts about God revealed. The final confrontation between good and evil ends on an unlikely note of triumph. Where lesser films might attempt a bombastic victory, this film embraces the Christian principles of self-sacrifice as a pathway to hope, even in the darkest of times. A film that is at once scary, dramatic, and oddly philosophical, The Exorcist challenges even the most ardent believer to examine themselves and discover just how deep their faith goes. And then at 1.30 a.m. I have a Q&A with Reed. Uh, Reed Lackey, co-host of More Than One Lesson. So that's Friday. That ends Friday. And here comes Saturday. I hope you guys are enjoying this. I have no idea if this is your kind of thing. Uh, so st- uh, starting at 10 a.m., we decided I decided to go with a, another film that is uh, more for children, uh, which is The Iron Giant. Before Brad Bird brought us The Incredibles and Ratatouille, he crafted a simple tale of a boy and his giant robot. A film reminiscent of Frankenstein and its themes of rebellion against one's own evil nature, the Iron Giant sees its main character throw off his battle programming in favor of gentleness and peace. Of course, it's only a matter of time uh, before the fearful and close-minded humans doubt his intentions and uh, and attempt to destroy him. It is a very common tale rooted in the biblical concept of turning the other cheek, even in the face of extreme adversity and intolerance. And out of that action comes redemption and even resurrection, leading to a climax that is both heartbreaking and inspiring. And then I have a Q&A with uh, Tim McCanleys, who is uh, the writer of the film. At 12.15 p.m., we've got Woodlawn. Directed by brothers Andrew and John Irwin, Woodlawn is based on the true story of a small town's racial prejudices overcome by faith and community. Like Risen, it is among the first overtly faith-based films to embrace genre storytelling as an effective means of exploring the transformative nature of the gospel. The film follows the coach, Nick Bishop, of the Woodlawn High School football team and the African-American running back, Caleb Castile, who certainly becomes... Oh, sorry who quickly becomes the star player shortly after the school is integrated, much to the chagrin of certain white players. With tensions running high, a campus minister, Sean Astin, encourages the players to put aside their anger and to come together as a team. The film widely... uh, 
Pardon me. The film wisely embraces its sports movie genre roots, complete with riveting game sequences to become an effective piece of filmmaking. And then uh, with that, I have a Q&A with uh, Andrew and John Irwin, who are the writer directors. At 3 p.m. is a documentary called Hell House. Given the, given the unusual practice of Christian-themed haunted houses, one might expect any documentary about the subject to skew towards the absurd or judgmental. George Ratliff's film Hell House, however, is extremely balanced, even finding affection for some of its subjects. It is the 10th anniversary of Trinity, Church, Trinity Church's popular haunted house, and the church is going to go all out. Is going to go all out. Yes. Upping the ante on the various culturally relevant vignettes that the audience walks through on their way to a literal depiction of hell. Some might view this heavy-handed attempt at community engagement as tone-deaf and perhaps even a bit legalistic, but the filmmaker allows the performers and staff to speak for themselves. Some come off better than others, but the film itself can challenge a Christian audience to ask exactly how best to reach out to its community and the tone that should be struck when doing so. And then I uh, follow that up with a Q&A with George Ratliff. At 5.10, we've got a classic. We've got The Night of the Hunter. Legendary actor Charles Lawton only directed one film, which was then so misunderstood by critics and poorly received by audiences that he never did it again. Since that time, The Night of the Hunter has grown in its cultural relevance and artistic influence until it is largely considered one of the best films ever made. The story of a predatory minister, Robert Mitchum, chasing two children down the river plays like a surreal mix of Huck Finn and Frankenstein, with a heavy, with a heavy dose of Nosferatu thrown in, thrown in for good measure. The jarring shifts in both tone and circumstances recreate a dreamlike atmosphere where things can change in a heartbeat and still appear to make sense, even when they actually don't. As the two children evade the minister, they arrive at the home of a strict old woman, Lillian Gish, whose down-home faith leads her to take the children under her wing and defend them from the monstrous preacher. A fascinating meditation on genuine faith and wolves in sheep's clothing. And the Q&A there is, once again, with Reed Lackey. I figure I flew him to the festival. Might as well use him. And then uh, Pastor Rankin Wilborn, who is actually the pastor of my church. Um, So, at 7 p.m., We've got a screening of Silence. Martin Scorsese's honest and beautiful portrait of the Japanese uh, persecution of Christians in the 1600s refuses to let anybody off easily. While our sympathies are undoubtedly with the Jesuit priests, we soon find that the situation is much more philosophically complex than they or we would first assume. The film explores the need to evangelize and what it means to see others the way Jesus did, connecting with people on their terms so, so that we might first meet their needs and learn to love them unconditionally. Scorsese asks us, what the relationship between a personal and public faith looks like, and the role that pride can play in that dynamic. A film that is full of doubt yet embraces hope despite itself, it understands the difficult journey, both internal and external, that the faithful embark upon the moment they decide to follow Christ. And then there I chose to be a little ambitious, and the Q&A is with Tim Keller, uh, who's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in uh, in New York. And then it's time for another midnight show. And this is of the wicker man, uh, the 1973 version. Thank you. Uh, Robin Hardy's the wicker man is a strange atmospheric horror film that challenges even our most basic assumptions about religion. A devout forthright police detective, Edward Woodward is sent to a small Island to investigate the disappearance of a young woman. Once there, he is, uh, he discovers that the inhabitants of the Island all appear to belong to the same obscure religion represented by their charismatic leader, 
Christopher Lee. The detective digs deeper into the tenets of the religion, finding it abhorrent to his own Christian beliefs and labeling it a cult. This leads to a series of casual debates between the detective and the cult leader, in which questions are asked about the legitimacy of any belief system. This results in a finale that is both fatalistic and unnerving for a Christian audience. The Wicker Man takes the most outlandish elements of horror and brings them into a more comfortable, reasonable setting and uses them to pull the viewer further into the dark mystery until they are forced to question their own reality as well, a thought-provoking film. And there, once again, I have a Q&A with Reed Lackey and then Blake Ian Collier, who is another uh, horror-minded Christian critic. So that's Saturday, and then here we go, home stretch, Sunday, September 10th, starting at 10 a.m., is Believe Me. The Christian audience isn't known for its sense of humor, especially about anything regarding itself. Jokes that poke fun at the church are often dismissed as disrespectful at best and sacrilegious at worst. However, Will Backey's 2014 comedy about a desperate college student, Alex Russell, who poses as a Christian evangelist, manages to walk the tightrope of being genuinely funny without tipping into offensiveness. This isn't to say, however, that the comedy is toothless. Backey and his co-writer, Michael B. Allen, take aim less at the, at the specific beliefs of the American Christian church and more at how the church has allowed those beliefs to be co-opted by those that have learned how to talk the talk but have no real interest in walking the walk. An incisive, thoughtful comedy that lands its blows firmly, Believe Me uses humor to examine why we believe what we do and how we choose to implement said beliefs. And then I uh, follow that up uh, with a Q&A with Will Backey, the director, and Adam Yenser, who is actually a guest on More Than One Lesson, who is uh, a comedian. Uh, and then we actually have the only short film of the festival, which is This Is Stuttering. Uh, which was directed by Morgan Lott, who was also on the show. Morgan Lott's short documentary is an incredibly vulnerable affair. It was originally filmed for Lott's own speech therapist as a video journal of his struggles with stuttering. As he continued to film his, uh, his exercises exercises and frustrations, Lott, then a film student at Biola University, saw the dramatic potential of what he was doing, eventually editing all the footage together. The resulting film is one that briefly explores the public perception of conditions like stuttering, which has no clear cause and thus no clear cure. Uh, as Lott recounts his own experiences and frustrations, such as being told by an exasperated teacher to simply spit it out, uh, we see the isolation and defensiveness that can come from being different. The Christian community has a history of condescension towards such conditions, assuring the afflicted that they, uh, that they should simply pray harder, and Lott's own spiritual journey is fraught with inner conflict and doubt, as he, wonder, uh, as he wonders why God would allow him to deal with such a debilitating and sometimes humiliating condition. It is as honest and illuminating as a, uh, a film as one could hope to see. And then I have a Q&A with Morgan. All right, home stretch, the last two movies. At 1.30 p.m., we have The Case for Christ. With so many faith-based films being more than willing to halt their story in order to present the gospel, John Gunn's The Case for Christ is that rare instance of a film that leads with its story and characters, allowing the gospel to speak for itself. Based on Lee Strobel's book, this film could very easily have been an exercise in Christian apologetics dressed up as a narrative. But the writer, Brian Bird, wisely decides to focus more on the implications of Strobel's realizations and the impact they have on his marriage. In the film, Lee, Mike Vogel, is a happily married journalist whose wife, 
whose wife Leslie, Erica Christensen, becomes a Christian, causing Lee to spiral into isolation. A committed atheist, Lee is forced by his love for his wife to look into her new beliefs, albeit to try to sway her away from them. The deeper he digs, the more doubt he has in his own skepticism. The film could have used Lee's marriage as a jumping-off point into a full-scale investigation into the Bible, but thankfully it returns over and over to the tensions between Lee and Leslie, tempered with their desperation to reconcile. This shows a deeper understanding of the gospel than even the most flagrant faith-based film, as Gunn and his writer explore the social ramifications of belief and show that acceptance of faith isn't the end of one's spiritual journey, but just the beginning. And then there, uh, here I have a Q&A with Lee Strobel and the director John Gunn. All right, last film of the festival is The Passion of Joan of Arc. What began with passion will end with passion. Carl Theodore Dreyer's seminal film The Passion of Joan of Arc revolutionized filmmaking with its overt emotion and unconventional style. Dreyer's extreme close-ups and unabashed melodrama could be considered unusual even by today's standards. This is a film that seems to somehow exist outside of the art form, made all the more so by the fact that this was lead, actresses, uh, lead actress uh, Maria Falconetti's only feature film and her last. Uh, she would never act again in film after The Passion of Joan of Arc, but her contribution to film acting is monumental, vulnerable yet uncompromising. The film itself is much more complex than one would first assume. At first, an exploration of the will of God, especially during wartime, in which both, case, uh, in which both sides are quick to invoke his name, into a condemnation of the politicization and, ex and exploitation of the underprivileged. It is a film that is every bit as vital now as it was upon its first release, both artistically and thematically. As Christians begin to get more comfortable with film as an art form, The Passion of Joan of Arc is a nice reminder that the interaction of faith and film is nothing new, and that sometimes the best education for modern filmmakers is to look back on the films that shaped the medium. And then uh, I have a Q&A with Charles Epting, who is a, a guy I know that is a, a, a devout Christian and a, a lover of silent film. And then once again, Tim Keller. So uh, just as a recap, we talk about, uh, or we, we would be showing The Passion of the Christ, uh, I wish I had the list. Okay. The Passion of the Christ, A Monster Calls, Risen, Chariots of Fire, Sing Over Me, The Apostle, The Exorcist, The Iron Giant, Woodlawn, uh, Hell House, which is a documentary, uh, The Night of the Hunter, Silence, The Wicker Man, Believe Me, This is Stuttering, uh, The Case for Christ, and The Passion of Joan of Arc. So... If you wanted to, uh, if you haven't seen these movies, I'd say check them out. Uh, but I would be fascinated to know if somebody uh, was interested in just sort of putting together this festival just for themselves, like maybe you and your friends or maybe for your church or something like that. I'd be fascinated to know how all of these films, when watched one right after another over the course of a few days, I'd be fascinated to know how a Christian filmgoer might feel at the end of that. So uh, if you want to take this as just a, a list of, of recommendations and why I recommend them, then by all means, go right ahead. But, uh, but if, I, 
if I had the ability and the time and the money, then this is absolutely a festival that I would want to put on. Um, I'm not exactly sure who would come because, you know, these are, this is a, uh, you know, th this would be a series of repertory screenings, which means these are films that are readily available. So why would somebody want to come out and see them on the big screen? Except that, of course, movies are meant to be seen on the big screen uh, and with an audience. Uh, and then the next, the next question is, uh, what kind of uh, Christian audience is so excited to see, you know, The Passion of Joan of Arc or Chariots of Fire or a couple of uh, obscure documentaries? Um, you know, so I'm not sure a festival like this could ever actually work, but a person can dream. And I thought I would let you in on my dream. So uh, thank you, everybody, for indulging me. Like I said, hopefully uh, starting with uh, starting next week when my quarter is over, hopefully I can get back to the normal format uh, of uh, either episodes or minisodes. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this uh, and uh, thank you for your indulgence and I'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.